This is the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder, and my next few episodes are coming to you from this summer's Nantucket Book Festival, beginning with a woman who has pursued her passion for books at great personal risk in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Azar Nafisi was born and raised in Iran's capital. Her father was the youngest man to ever serve as mayor of Tehran. Her mother was one of the first female members of Iran's parliament. When the Islamic Revolution came in 1979, at the very time the United States was portrayed as the devil by the new Iranian leadership, Professor Azar Nafisi insisted on teaching her university students in Tehran the Western classics. And when the restrictions and capriciousness of her country's rulers became too extreme for her to function the way she felt was necessary, she chose seven of her most committed female students, and secretly, they gathered weekly at her apartment to discuss great books openly in ways too dangerous to share outside that apartment. That experience formed the basis of her global best-selling memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran. Azar Nafisi is now an American citizen. Her latest book, The Republic of Imagination, America in Three Books, is in a way best summed up by one of her latest tweets, Readers of the World Unite. Now, recorded live at the Nantucket Book Festival, my conversation with Azar Nafisi. Azar, I want to start with a joke I heard from the old Soviet Union. It was very popular a man from a very remote part of Siberia who fancied himself a writer but really wasn't, uh, took the 2,000-mile train ride to Moscow to join the prestigious Moscow Writers Union. And they sat him in front of a panel, and they said, so what do you think of uh, Nabokov? He said, "Uh, Nabokov? I've never heard of Nabokov. He said, well, what do you think about Chekhov? He said, I I don't know about Chekhov. I've never never heard of him. What about Tolstoy? He said, Tolstoy, I don't know. You are submitting an application to the Moscow Writers' Union? You haven't heard of any of our greatest authors? He said, you must be mistaken. I said, I am a writer, not a reader. (laughs) And so I turn to you, who have gained fame as a writer, and yet first and foremost, it sounds like you're a reader. Oh, definitely. And, and what I was going to say, we were just talking uh, with Molly before uh, uh, coming here on stage, and I was saying that how I hate to use this hackneyed word that everybody uses nowadays, blessed, you know, because Kim Kardashian is also blessed. And, you know, but um, I, I, I feel really genuinely blessed because both through my writing, but mainly through my reading, um, I connect to people who Otherwise, I would have never dreamt of connecting to, you know, and, and, and that and the main reason we connect is through the passion we share uh, for, 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 for knowledge, the curiosity. And, and um, immediately, strangers become intimate strangers, you know, because there is a very, very special relationship between the writer and the reader and the readers. Uh, So yes, I start with reading. And that passion for reading was extremely hard to pursue back in post-revolutionary Iran. So take us back to 1979. It was right after the revolution. Ayatollah Khomeini had taken over. Uh, American hostages were not far from where you were teaching at University of Tehran. And, And you could have gone and hid 
but you didn't. Tell us what you did and how you responded to the revolution. Well, um, when, when, when you talk about the Iranian revolution, you're also talking about the book that I wrote about it, you know, uh, reading Lolita in Tehran. And, and, and the reason I'm mentioning that is because when I came to the United States and uh, Ishmael Bear had a, an amazingly intriguing and wonderful talk uh, just this morning, and I noticed that he also mentioned this point about how the country I knew, the country I grew up in, the country I loved, and the country I had to leave was so much distorted and reduced and misrepresented here in, in America. I mean, if you ever thought of Iran, you would only think of, um, you know, bearded men like uh, Mr. Rouhani, uh, who is called a reformer and a little bit moderate, and the non-bearded men like Mr. Ahmadinejad, who's a hardliner with a smirk on his face, you know, as if he's just broken the neighbor's window and gotten away with it. You know, and, and, and these were the representative of, of of, of my country, of my culture, of its history. And I wanted to tell people that no, when you go to ordinary people's lives, there's another story to tell when you go to their history and culture. And so for me, uh, when I went back to Iran, these books, which had always connected me to the world and given me joy, became part of my very, the essence of my life because it was through these books that I could connect to my students. But when you say went back to Iran, so you, went, you were outside of Iran and went yes. back after the revolution. I was outside of Iran. I was a student. And like my husband, Bijan, whom I love to embarrass, he's sitting over there. Um, uh, we were both in the student movement. And, and uh, we were both you know, very, very radically uh, involved. But what I noticed was that when you are very ideological, uh, you, know, you always sort of reduce and formulate and box the world um, in a specific ideology. And then you feel very comfortable. And you know who the black hats are. And you're always the white hat. And that is how we were. Uh, so in essence, I was neither living in America nor living in Iran. I, was, I had created a fantasy Iran and a fantasy America uh, against some of which I rebelled and against part of it I didn't. Even then, as a student in the, as a, in the student movement, it was books. It was the fact that I was going into the streets of um, Norman, Oklahoma, or Washington, D.C., saying, uh, CIA advisors, US uh, whatevers, get out of Iran. And then at night, there was this private space where I would be reading Tom Jones and uh, um, uh, Tristram Shandy and, and, and Moby Dick, you know. And, and that space in all all periods of my life was with me. But when I went to Iran, all of a sudden they took another color. Because now, reading Tom Jones or, or um, Elizabeth Bennett was so real to the censor that they felt that it would do them actual harm if you read them. And so I realized an aspect of reading that I had never realized before. And you kept on reading, and you, and the quote from your book is, you lived, and all of you lived in an atmosphere of perpetual dread. And yet you kept on reading, and tell us, you took it further than, you weren't just reading in the privacy of your home, you continued teaching these works that were considered subversive by a government that was hurting people. Tell us yes. about, about that choice. Well, well and, and, and you know, 
every story you hear about repress, repression, um, there are certain things that are very, very much universal, and this was true of Iran. The fact that in Iran, at some point, the act of reading was very much taking action, you know. So in the same way that government felt that ideas and imagination were hurtful to them, you know, people felt that ideas and imagination were the places where they could open spaces and, and, and be liberated. And I mentioned in my book um, that one of the most, um, one of the worst things you can do in a work of, great work of fiction is to be blind. Blindness towards others. I mean, look at novels from, from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, where pride and prejudice, both of them prevent you from seeing the other. Both of them interfere your, with your relationship with the other because you see them through the prism you have made, you have created of them. And now, the whole idea of a <coughs> tyrannical regime for my students and I um, became symbolized not in a political book, but in books that were in fact not political, but subversive of both politics and existentially subversive of you. Um, so for example, with Pride and Prejudice, um, Elizabeth Bennet and Darcy, who are both the protagonists, they're the ones who are flawed. <laughs> and their flaw is blindness towards one another. And the whole plot is around becoming less blind. And, and, and at the heart of the English novel, of the great English novels of um, 18th and 19th century, there is always the figure of a woman who says no to the dictates of her parents, of the, the norms of her society. And she says, I choose the man I want to live with. You know? And that, for the Islamic Republic, was very dangerous because the first thing they do is take away your choice. They want to define you and they want to impose an image upon you, which is you know, their image. So we all become figments of someone else's imagination. So you are an example of a woman, though, in that atmosphere, you said no, and you kept on teaching these classes. And when you, were, when you couldn't take it anymore at the university, as you, as you bring out in your book, Reading Lolita in Tehran, you taught it in your own home with seven of your most prized students and all were risking something to read and discuss it. Tell me what that, did you ever doubt that choice? Did you ever hesitate? No, no, <laughs> because you know, once I would stop connecting, and my connections to the world are mainly through books, then I would stop living. You know, and, and, and for me in Iran, as in the United States, and no matter where I go, uh, again, you know, when Ishmael was talking, he didn't know, but he was existentially a writer. <laughs> you know, he couldn't help it. And, 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 and what books do, their subversiveness, is existential. It is not political. It's something that you change if you go somewhere else or if you do something else. Existential, meaning you can't live without it. No, I couldn't live without, without that work of imagination. I could, it, it was something that um, I did not because I was courageous. I, I, I am a coward like the rest of us, you know? I mean, 
you are you, you, you are afraid. I, I keep telling people that they should remember that um, there is always fear. You know, there is always fear, and fear is not a good thing. You know, it stays with you. It leaves its burden on your shoulders forever and ever. But the whole point about it is that each of us in Iran tried to fight the system, not politically, but existentially. It was like what Havel talks about in um, his book about the power of the powerless. And the way you do it is by becoming more yourself, by preserving your individual integrity. And those girls in my class, the way they expressed their story, they gained power over a reality over which they had no control. How so? How so? I mean, give us an, take us into your apartment where you were teaching these girls. Mark Twain, of all things, Huckleberry Finn. Oh, yes. You're obsessed with Huckleberry Finn. I, I, yes. Well, that obsession sort of flourished in this new book. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was, actually, Huckleberry Finn was the first book I taught in Iran in a class named Research. And, and, and my students immediately got it. You know, they, they had, you know, they had never been repressed in that manner. They knew very little about the idea of slavery, you know, the way it was described. But, but they knew about homelessness. And they knew that homelessness is not something that is physical. There is an essential orphanhood or homelessness that Huckleberry Finn and Jim, both of them represent. And, and, and I wanted my students to understand America um, in its entirety. I wanted to understand that the great protagonists of American literature, like Huck and Jim, where their independence was not the kind of independence that we talk about today. You know, the individualism we talk in America today, the dog-eat-dog -dog world, the, the clown has entered the scene again, Donald Trump's talking about, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, well, you know, no. It is not about the fact that let us just go like a bulldozer and mow everybody in order to get more success. In fact, the independence that Huck Finn talks about is that, you know, Huck Finn has big things. Every time somebody tells him something, from Tom Sawyer to the Sunday school Miss Watson, he has his big things. You think. That is independence, that you reflect upon what others tell you. And the second thing is that he thinks not just with his head, but with his heart. And it is through his heart that he discovers Jim. And Jim becomes the moral compass of Huckleberry Finn. Jim is the slave, for those of us who haven't read it in a long time. Is there anyone who hasn't read Huckleberry Finn? OK. <laughs> I'm not talking about the movie, obviously. <laughs> no, no, because, you know, I mean, would Jim, uh, and I talk about it in my new book, Republic of Imagination, when I read Huckleberry Finn again this time, I, I, I realized that, um, well, the first thing was that with this book, I started reading American history and, and reading these books from a different perspective. Now I was going to be here. And this is for your new, your new book, The Republic of Imagination. Yeah, it is, it is with that one. And, and 
after um, eight years or so of when I returned to US in 1997, um, I decided that I have to decide whether I want to become an American or not. And I mentioned in the book that the way you become a citizen by choice, um, it is not because you are crazy about everything. I, I would follow uh, Mark Twain's actually edict who says that patriotism is supporting your country all of the time and supporting your government when it deserves it. You know? and, and, and James Baldwin who said, uh, and I end my book with James Baldwin. James Baldwin who said, I love America more than any other country in the world, which, which is why I criticize it. So I realize that if you love a place, you are also worried about it. You keep complaining, you know, why are things the way they are? They shouldn't be this way. And when I started complaining too much, I decided I should become an American because <laughs> I want to do something about it, obviously, you know. And then the, the second question was, what kind of American do I want to be? And I think that this is a question that we as Americans have to respond to again now. You know. So what are we Americans not seeing? I, I, I want to get to America in a second, but I just, you have to tell the story about the censor <laughs> in Iran, because you, know, you, you have this image of Big Brother is watching you, but oh, yes. tell us about the censor that you had to deal with in that society. Well, well you, you know, when, when you read um, the Eastern Europeans or people who come from uh, and their oppression, you notice that how humor, actually you and I were talking about that on the phone. I had such an amazing conversation with him on the phone <laughs> that I'm gonna call him right after this meeting. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, the, 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 the whole idea about um, um, living under that kind of pressure um, is that you also laugh at your own tragedy the absurdity that you are part of. And, and one of these absurd things um, was the fact that um, the main censor for theater in Iran was blind, <laughs> or, or, or you know, nearly blind. And one of the great directors, both um, theater and film, Bahram Beizai, uh, was telling me that how, uh, when he, whenever he wanted to um, sort of uh, see a play, two people would sit on, his, on both sides of him and they will say like, for example, now the girl is getting closer to the boy, now closer, closer, cut, you know? And, and then what he had done, he had asked the playwrights to um, make a tape of their play. But one of the worst things that you can tell a playwright, which is terrible, is to make a play but without, um, dramatizing it, just reading it straight, you know, so that he could listen. After a while, uh, he was no more the censor for theater. They put him as the head censor of a new television channel that, that started in Iran. And the one who replaced him w was not blind physically, obviously he was blind, um, and he would still listen to the tape on the way home. You know? and, and, and that blind censor for me became a metaphor for what a censor is all about. Because some people ask me, how could you guys do some of the things? How come Iran, for example, has such an amazing uh, movie, films that come out of Iran. And I tell them two things. One is Iranian culture. Film came to Iran over 100 years ago. 
you know, and, 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 and if you go and read about Iranian culture and history, you would not be at all surprised at some of the great directors we had. And the second thing is that fortunately, because the censor is blind, they only see the obvious. You know, like for example, when I was showing, I, I was trying to show my students um, the, C, the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, and they wouldn't allow us because of the women wearing decolletage. But they didn't see that what I was teaching was far more subversive than somebody's breasts. <laughs> you know, the fact that choice and independence of mind is what hurts them. So what happens is that you do something, people come, and the more people come, the more suspicious the censor becomes. So then they understand, no, this film is not good. That is why so many films come out, and if you like them, then they are banned, you know. So, so this idea of blindness and sense, there's a lot of self-censorship too, and sometimes we make ourselves blind by just not, and this gets to your mission of reading and why the Republic of Imagination, the central thesis there is not only must we all become, how do you put it, good readers, not just ordinary readers, good readers, and we need to, the readers need to communicate yeah. with each other. So tell me, what can you, because very often, we learn more about ourselves from somebody coming from outside and giving us a fresh perspective. Tell us something about America that you think we Americans, you're an American now, but that we who grew up in America are not quite understanding about our country and ourselves. Well, um, again, you know, again, one of the things that you and I were talking about was uh, one of the vibrant and dynamic aspects of America is that you bring your past with you. Like today when Ishmael was talking about his past, which was so strange and, 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 and so new to all of us, I was thinking, okay, here is an alternative eye looking at himself, but also looking at us through those eyes, you know. And, and, and so I feel that we as immigrants, the gift we bring this country is bringing those alternative eyes. Because the, the thing that Huckleberry Finn and each novel that I talk about in this book criticizes in America, the danger in America, is not the same as the danger in Iran. The danger in Iran, as Saul Bellow used to say, is very obvious. You know, Holocaust, Soviet Union, Islamic Republic of Iran, China, what they do to their people is so extreme that we all understand it. And the, both the regime and the people understand it. In America, when I came to America, what I saw, which really made me feel dangerous, is what these writers saw, complacency. America is, they don't, um, Ray Bradbury would say that you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. All you have to do is to keep the people from reading. So indifference, what Bellow called atrophy of feeling and um, sleeping consciousness becomes the, mere, the, the main enemy here in the United States. And reading and writing is a very sensual affair. And communicating, books are meant to be read and communicated through alternative eyes of ages and people. And that requires carving out a significant amount of time. And there is so much competition for our attention. So we need somebody to tell us, 
there's this great book. You've got to carve out the time for it. And many of the books you're recommending are books that were written a long time ago and are still so fresh. And right before we got up on stage, you were telling me about Babbitt. Oh, yes, Babbitt. Babbitt. <laughs> you, well, Babbitt is the most obvious of, I mean, would Huck Finn, Huck Finn takes you through every single kind of, complacency that America could have. From the Sunday school teacher, the way they teach you religion, you know, and going to hell, and Sarah Palin, and yada, yada, you know, to, um, uh, to um, Granger Fords and Shepherdsons who are killing one another. By the way, I have to say, there's a Sarah Palin Donald Trump fundraiser after this, if you'd like to join us. <laughs> Just a... I, I, I really shouldn't be doing this. These are easy targets. I, I really, I really shouldn't be, but you know, it is just um, too good to be true. <laughs> if Sinclair Lewis wrote it, you would think it's fiction, right? Um, and, 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 and so um, Babbitt, uh, and, and, and so in Huck Finn, and at the core of complacency is the issue of slavery and race. And I realized that this is America. I mean, the moral compass of America is that extreme blindness which came with slavery and the struggle against slavery at every stage was the biggest achievement of, 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 of this country, that you know, opening of the eyes. Um, but what were you asking me? I forgot. Well, I wanted you to take us back to Babbitt, oh, because, Babbitt. because we need to carve out time to read, yes. and we have to have a compelling reason to do it. I, I am not going to burden you with reading about myself, but I will read about Babbitt, because Babbitt, I tell you one of the things that Babbitt did. When I read it as a student, college student, I felt very smug. I was laughing at Babbitt. You know, when I read it as a rather mature person, I don't know how mature I am right now, um, I realized that the thing about Babbitt is not that Babbitt is so, or Donald Trump is so, you know, um, ridiculously dangerous, you know, but the fact that I have something of Babbitt in myself, that we are part of this consumer society, we do go in front of the Apple store and stay for hours, you know, in order to get uh, the new iPad or the new iPhone, because this is one of the premises in Babbitt, newness, lack of history. He says all history, you know, all history becomes bunk as, um, who was the, uh, Henry Ford said, you know, that all history is bunk. That newness which created Huck Finn can also create someone like Babbitt. So, uh, and there are many passages in Babbitt, um, and there's one conversation where he talks about, we need to have a president who's a good business administrator. We don't need these college professors and them. To, 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 but, but this is um, about religion, and, and I'm going to read you two quotations. One quotation is from um, the Sermon on the Amount, it's called. <laughs> okay. It says, the next time you get paid, you write the first check to God. And then you watch God take care of you. Imagine Jesus and blessed are the poor and the meek and, okay. Um, uh, and exhorts us to get involved with God financially. Because if you do, God will provide for you. Now, you think that this might be out of Babbitt, but this is not. 
Sermon on the Amount is a real sermon delivered by the very real Dr. David Jeremiah, radio show host, televangelist, and pastor of Shadow Mountain Community Church in San Diego. And in his Sunday television show, he, he told us about God's economic plan and offered to take you on a cruise along with his wife and sell you 30 days to understanding the Christian life in just 15 minutes a day. He also helpfully has written a book called The, Force, the Worst Financial Mistakes in the Bible and How You Can Avoid Them. <laughs> and a what not to do guide for your finances from a biblical perspective. Remember kristenminkel.com, God's match for you. So, this is the God that they want us to pray to. Now, the God in Babbitt, he's wonderful, the preacher in Babbitt. I don't have as much quotations from him as I have from him, but he's, you should read that book. It's the preacher is Mike Monday, the prophet with a punch, and the world's greatest salesman of salvation, who has converted over 200,000 lost and priceless souls, souls at an average cost of less than $10 a head. <laughs> so you can imagine how Sinclair Lewis not only revealed the reality about his times, but he predicted us. I mean, Mike Monday is the ancestor to David Jeremiah. You know, and, and, and so books, what they do to you or for you, first of all, they disturb you. You know, I said that at the commencement speech um, at Claremont, and the president said, we wouldn't have you welcome the students to college, because I said what Baldwin used to say, that writers are here to disturb you, to disturb the peace. That is what great writers do. They disturb the peace. They make you think, but at the same time, they give you the utter joy of a miracle, the way they connect you to your past. So there is a continuity. I think it's very frightening when you think that there, is, there has been no past, that there was no one before you. And, 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 and art and literature and music, they become guardians of memory. The conclusive evidence, as Nabokov said, that we have lived, you know, and 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 then they also predict the future, you know, and 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 what in the Babbitt segment I was really seething, and I still do, is our education system, and what our education policymakers, right and left, Republican and Democrat, are doing to our public schools today. I am really here so that the readers, we all get into this conspiracy to save imagination and ideas in this country and not allow our system of education to go down the way it is. I'm sorry, I had to have that punch as Reverend Mike Monday. So this, this conspiracy, how, how are we going to execute this? Because, because we really we, we have to have a game plan now. You will be doing it. <laughs> OK. The media, I mean, you know, look at our media. I mean, first of all, social media, which I also use, I've been tweeting about today. <laughs> but the whole point about it is that 
when it gets to the point where it is completely controlling us, it becomes dangerous. We have to know how to, how to use the social media in order to create spaces for real knowledge, because what Google gives you is information, not knowledge. And, I and I, I'm following you on Twitter now, and you're using and I'm it. I'm you. There you go. <laughs> That's right. No, and, and, and I just got into Twitter, so I'm still a bit excited about it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Introducing Play.it, a podcast network like no other. From award-winning news programming and number one sports brands to entertainment and business leaders, Play.it is delivering storytelling at its best. We're going to be having conversations with newsmakers and culture shapers. I will be talking mostly about fashion and how I've been marketing all my life. Tech, culture, and entrepreneurship. Everything in the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and beyond. Hear what you've been missing at Play.it. Know what's going on with your favorite artists, bands, and celebs. Sign up today to get the Radio.com daily newsletter, which covers all your breaking music and entertainment news. Go to Radio.com slash newsletter to get updates directly to your inbox. That's Radio.com slash newsletter. Back to the conversation. Well, well let, me, let me ask you. First of all, is Twitter affecting your, your writing style at all? Because there is an art. There is an art to writing something to, in 140 characters. And in Iran, I know you talk about it. The history and the power of poetry oh, yeah. very important in Iran. And tell us about that and also talk about one, because I still don't think you have yet captured for, okay, for, I'll for tell this about Iran. Tell about Iran, but also I, I'm not sure you've captured just again the choices that you made when you were there and now you're coming here and complacency scares you. In fact, there was a little moment where right before we came up on stage, they were testing the mics and they said, I said, well, you know, do we have to turn it on? And they said, no, no, they'll go on automatically. You don't have to do anything. And Ozer said, that scares me. When you don't have to do anything, that scares me. That is, I mean, I, I do believe, I mean, you know, totalitarianism is, in fact, uh, the search for absolute complacency, you know, so that you would... Turn all the voices into one, which is, which is yours, you know? And, and, and that is where the cruelty comes, the, the elimination of other voices. Now, in this country, it is far more seductive because you're doing it through social media, you know? I mean, I use Twitter to say that I'm happy to be in Nantucket or bring a coat that I like or, or connect to people that I like. But, but you know, th that, that does not explain things. That does not tell you about the way the sun is setting on the trees in Nantucket that is different from DC. It doesn't tell you about the stars and, and, and the way the stars, you know, it does not make it concrete for you. And, and you know, Baldwin used to say, um, art would not be important if life was not important, and life is important. Now, our politicians today are telling us exactly what the tyrants in Iran are telling us, only in a different way. The tyrants in Iran are more clever because they know that reading books is dangerous. The first place in Iran they attacked was the universities, and they weren't attacking engineers unless the engineers were you know, reading the wrong books or, or saying the wrong things, they attacked humanities. They're still attacking humanities. China, Saudi Arabia, 
they have this love and hate affair with America. On one hand, they want to buy Louvre and NYU with shame on NYU for you know, going there and, and, and building on, on the slave labor. And, and you know what they're saying now, Guggenheim and NYU, that we are not using slave labor. So it's okay to go into a country that is using slave labor. Only your building will not be slave labor. You know? And we're accepting it. We, as the audience to this charade, we're accepting it. We're not questioning, and I don't mean by questioning going into the streets and shouting against the government and wanting to overthrow the system, but using the communities, losing a space like this to say, what do we want? What do we, because my students in that small room, you know, they were doing it. But our students today, they want trigger warning. They want to be so complacent that they say, Reading Hakfin traumatizes me, so I should know beforehand. Yet, they listen to Ishmael Beer, they, they read his books, they listen to Malala, and they read my students' accounts, and they say, oh, how courageous. No, this is not, you don't put people on the pedestal and turn them into celebrities and then feel good so that you don't have to do it, and then get traumatized because you're reading Huckleberry Finn. No, but we can look for inspiration to you, and I have to come back to the choice, because you said the Iranian authorities, when you were there, what they would do is they would go after the humanities, so you yes. were at ground zero there. You were teaching the humanities, and you kept on teaching it, and how did you, because many of the people I know from reading, you have two memoirs, and you're one of, a person who actually has enough to, to tell with two memoirs. One is from the, through the books, and one is just through your life story. Yeah. And, and how is it that you kept on making a choice when many of the people you know did not survive? Well, you kept on making that choice. So you don't call that courage, but to me I it, call that, well, there's, there's some inspiration there for the rest of us. You know, when you were under those circumstances, honest to God, what I did was not courage. I mean, you have young girls who risk everything and you know some of my best students were murdered and killed in you know in jails the fact that i an american educated um, writer and teacher first of all that gave me privilege just it is very ironic because you came here when Iran still allow, allowed its people to travel and you were educated. Did you get to, your PhD, was it at Universe, uh, Oklahoma? Yes, and that, that somebody asked me, how could you go to that very strange and backward country, Oklahoma? <laughs> and and I, I mean, I got married, uh, not to him, but to someone else when I was very young. But I'm so glad I went to Oklahoma. i tell you about that later, but go ahead. We don't have much time left, but, but talking about girls, I just wanted to, two, two things that really move. First of all, I have, I have a question I want to relay from my daughter, Emma, who said, if you went to Iran today, would you wear the veil? And, and if you would, would it be for protection? And if you wouldn't, would it be to make a statement? Would you? Would you? Okay. Um, I'll tell Emma to do two things. First of all, um, there's this website that now has millions of um, um, 
people watching it, called Iranian women's stealthy freedoms. And um, it is just about Iranian women at different parts taking off their veil and taking a picture with it, you know. And um, the other one you might have seen, uh, which I sometimes actually show it to the students in classes, um, it is these young Iranians um, doing the version, their version of happy, Farrell's happy. <laughs> and I usually show it to, to the young people, and I tell them that when you ask me about young Iranians, they're basically the same as you because we need to celebrate difference, but it is very dangerous to think that others are just different from us and not have a lot in common with us as well. And I tell them that they, like you, like to be happy. They love to dance, they love to sing, they love to fall in love. But the difference between you and them is that right after they made this video, they were taken to jail. And, and you are free, but you're free now as the... Uh, title to one of Sinclair Lewis's novels, uh, It Can't Happen Here, it can happen here. And when we think it can't happen here, it has already happened here. So that is one thing. The second thing, Emma, you know, when, when they first imposed the veil uh, um, on the Iranian women, it was um, at the very beginning of the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini gave an edict. Hundreds of thousands of Iranian women came into the streets. I have the picture actually in my uh, memoirs, things I have been silent about. And they shouted that freedom is neither Western nor Eastern, freedom is global. And the pressure was so much that although they threw acid into these women's faces and attacked them with uh, knives and scissors, they did not back down, so he had to take it back. Then what he did was they gradually brought the veil, uh, which was first in the shops. When you went into a shop, they wouldn't sell you things until you wore a scarf. And then in workplaces. That was when I decided that I would not wear the veil, and I and three of my colleagues were um, uh, expelled, finally. But first of all, I wasn't brave because many Iranian women, whose names you don't know, did the same thing. Or, uh, and were expelled, and their condition was not as good as mine was. Um, the second thing was that Iranian women, um, the issue, as I told them at the university, was not whether the veil is good or bad, although we each have the right to like or not like it and talk about it, because that right has been taken away from us in America, not in Iran. The second thing is that it is about choice that when a woman should not be told by anyone, her father, her husband, the state, how to relate to her God and how to come into the streets. And the third thing that I was saying was that if as the apologists for these regimes, including some feminists, say, people in these countries love the Sharia laws, you know, women are being stoned to death saying, Oh, we just love it because it's our culture, you know. Um, if that is true, if getting married at the age of nine, because these are the changes they brought to Iran. That is actually the age of legal marriage in Iran. That, that was what they did in Saudi Arabia. It is Iranian women fought it until they turned it into 13, but still the judge can decide if the girl can get married, uh, you know, uh, 
younger than nine. These are the laws they brought to Iran. Iran, the first woman that unveiled in Iran was in 18, 1836. And she was the precursor of a new religion, what we call now Baha'i religion. And Baha'is in Iran are treated the way Jews were in Germany. Now, she was also a poet, and she came among her, belie her followers, and she had a lot of followers. She was very popular in Iran. And she said, the universal advent has arrived. And she took off her veil. Uh, she was put under house arrest by the Shah. The clerics very much pushed it until they didn't want to kill her in public because they were afraid that her place where she was killed would turn into a shrine. So in midnight, they take her to a got to the garden and strangle her, and nobody knows where she's buried. So they created a shrine in the hearts of every Iranian woman. To make this long story short, if you go and read Iranian poetry belonging to 11th century, uh, our epic poet Ferdowsi, these are all translated by the great Dick Davis, you'll find that Iranian women, 1,000 years ago in these stories, not only chose their husbands, they chose their lovers. That wine in Iranian poetry is sacred. It represents the union with God. That we had an obscene poet criticizing Orthodox religion in 14th century. If you read the book called Faces of Love about Iranian poets in 14th century, Norton would not publish it because they said we cannot teach it at our universities. So we don't need people to tell us that when the, when, uh, can we have one minute to yeah. just talk about this part? Because I really, it is important people know about Iran. Iran is a very, very ancient country. It goes back to 3,000 years at least, and half of it was Zoroastrian. We still celebrate the Iranian New Year on 21st of March, which is the Zoroastrian rite of spring. The name of month in the calendar are the name of the Zoroastrian deities. I was born in the month of Azar, which is December, which is the deity for fire. Very, very much the Islam that came to Iran is mixed with the culture of the countries that it invaded, like any other invasion. And so you have these poets, our feminist poets, uh, if you read Furugh Farrokhzad and his poetry, and all of these are translated, you see the way she denies God, the way she talks about, brags about how she has sinned in the arms of a man you would not say that the desire of that young Iranian girl for freedom is Western. I keep telling American women that the desire for life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is not Western. That Afghani women, when they are killed because of the way they wear the veil, they don't love it. That every woman in the world wants to be happy. And by the time of the Islamic Revolution, after Iran's constitutional revolution at the beginning of last century, which was the first revolution of its kind in Asia, Iranian women were active in all walks of life. At the time of revolution, we had a woman 
for Minister for Women's Affairs, the second in the world next to the French. We had a minister for higher education who was a woman and she was murdered by this regime for spreading prostitution and corruption on earth. My own mother went to parliament along with six other women in 1963, 11 years before Swiss women got their right to vote. I'm saying these things because every struggle has been fought and in the name of tradition, American women were told when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Harriet Beecher Stowe and Sojourner Truth were fighting for their rights, they were told that you have no rights because Bible says women stay at home. Should you have said it's their culture? Let, let them do their culture? If not, how come we are not supporting Iranian women, Afghani women, Saudi women, and saying that it is their culture. You know, so I'm sorry, I'm saying this, I'm saying this because I have been through the academia in this country. And what I really would like to ask you is, after you listen to Wolf Blitzer and O'Reilly and MSNBC, then go and read these books. Don't listen to me. Read Iranian culture and Iranian history, and you'll get, it is hopeful and encouraging. I didn't answer, answer to you. I will say one sentence. When I refused to wear the veil, uh, someone who was the head of the department at that time told me this was a very vain uh, gesture on your part and the part of your colleagues not wearing the veil. You just, this was a bourgeois individualist act that you did. And she told me that uh, soon you will be having to wear the veil in a grocery store, so why not wearing it? And I told her that a university is not a grocery store. And I know that I have to wear the veil. Each of you going to Iran or to Saudi Arabia have to wear the veil. But I did not want to go to class and have the students, especially the Islamic students, who had seen me without the veil, wear the veil for just a few <laughs> dollars that I get at the end of the month. So it was a gesture which might have been vain, but it wasn't. And that is why Iranian women have been going into the streets of Tehran with their weapons of mass destruction, which is their lipstick and showing their hair. <laughs> and they were the ones who forced the morality squads to retreat. So that today, the woman who has the Iranian women's stilty freedom, uh, that website, she who used to wear the veil, who belonged to the ruling class in Iran, has defected to our side. That is how Iranian women are fighting it, and, and I think that I'm more proud of Iranian women, especially the young women, um, than I am of anything else in Iran. Azar Nafisi. I'm so sorry, I didn't let you guys. It's your fault and your dad's fault. Thank you so much for joining us at the Nantucket Book Festival.
If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening.